Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So now we're on to this last of the masters from this book that was originally called Living Buddhist Masters. It's now called Living Dharma. And here is one of the few living masters from when the book first came out in 1976, I think it was, 77, that Jack Kornfield put together. And Ajahn Jamnian is um, the last one, and it's quite fitting that he's the last one, not only that he's still alive, but that um, he's somebody that embodies all the different practices. Um, how many people have been around Ajahn Jamnian? A few. Okay, good. Here's a, a, a picture. You, he's kind of small if you're far away, but you can see if you haven't seen an older picture of him and know him in recent years, um, he's a stunning guy. And in fact, it was said when Jack first met him, and there were you know lots. He's very popular. He goes he in his monasteries or when he gives a talk in in Thailand, thousands of people come, right? So he's just going to be here with whoever comes on the, on the 20, uh, no, on August, on April 6th. Um, and Jack said, you know, do you know that there's so many people here that are coming because they're in love with you? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I know. <laughs> but whatever gets them here is fine with me. Uh, and now, as if, you, if you've seen him, I'll just put his picture over here. If you've, if you've seen him, he's, he's at, oh, he's probably around 70 or so, and uh, he's got a lot of weight, and he, he wears about 30 or 40 pounds of... Hmm, trinkets and amulets and in Yiddish they call it chachka but uh, just a whole lot of stuff he's, he's his own being he has his own way of doing things um, and you know he, he's, he doesn't have that, that stunning appearance but he has this very happy appearance I'll talk a little bit about him and share some of his teachings. I'll, I'll be reading actually from the book. So, uh, He was born in, in rural Thailand and began practice at the age of six. Had a knack early on for concentration practice. Learned a lot of concentration meditations and also uh, particularly loving kindness. And he has really strong loving kindness, metta vibe to him. Uh, I remember him talking about how at a very early age he went into these deep states of absorption uh, and, and uh, samadhi, jhana states, and uh, he was a kind of a precocious meditator, to say the least. He was also trained as a healer and a shaman and he was, uh, according to uh, stories, was admonished by his 
meditation teacher saying, you know, just meditate. Don't, don't get into that healing stuff and that shaman stuff. But he is both a meditation master and, and a shaman healer. He does a lot of healing. And he, when he comes, and when he comes here, I'm sure he'll have lots of, uh, he gives away amulets and, and stuff for people and who take it as healing. Uh, healing uh, uh, objects. He does some chanting over them and stuff like that. Um, he was um, he was asked actually to uh, to teach when he was in his early thirties and he was starting to become known uh, around his area for both his wisdom and the power of his loving kindness. He imagined practicing from the age of six or so loving kindness, you've got a really nice aura to you. And uh, besides his appearance, his heart was very striking. And so he was asked to teach. And then he was asked particularly to go down to southern Thailand where this one area they were having a lot of political problems. There were um, the government forces and communist, um, they call them communist insurgents, but the communist uh, 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 rural uh, side that were at odds with each other for, for quite some time. And he came to this monastery in the middle of the most intense areas of conflict. And what he, what he did, just by the power of his metta, was quite remarkable because both sides first didn't trust him at all. He'd be teaching the government forces and the communist ones were saying, oh, he's really with them. And then he'd teach the communists uh, rebels and the government would, wouldn't trust him. And uh, there were a number of threats on his life, actually. And I, as I recall him talking about um, an assassination uh, attempt or somebody was, was commissioned to be a hit man. And he, he has powers of mind as well. And he saw where this guy was coming from and he got to know him and beamed him with love and said, you know, do what you need to do, uh, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not afraid, and I teach everyone the Dharma. And the guy became a disciple of his. And in fact, that's what happened with both sides. He had such, has such good loving-kindness practice that they all fell in love with him in the highest sense, and they... He said, the Dharma is for everybody. Uh, I, I can offer you only what I know and I don't take sides. And both sides turned, uh, became his protectors. They were, both sides were watching the monastery to make sure that he was, he was safe. That's a pretty good practice. Uh, so, up until now, I've been 
sharing, okay, this is the style of practice that this teacher does, like, you know, Ubakin with sweeping or Ajahn Damodaro with moving the hand or Sunlun uh, Sayadaw uh, with the heavy breathing and lots of different practices. Ajahn Jumdian, one of the main hallmarks of his teaching is there's no one right way. And because he's mastered both concentration and insight, mindfulness practices, and been practicing since he was very young, he teaches all of them. And part of it is getting a sense, part of his approach is getting a sense of what somebody needs. I'll share a little bit from the book. Um, What type of meditation do you teach here? It's a question. Here you'll find people practicing many meditation techniques. The Buddha outlined more than 40 kinds to his disciples. Not everyone has the same background. Not everyone has the same abilities. I do not teach just one type of meditation, but many selecting the appropriate for each disciple. So here, some here practice meditation on the breath. Others do meditation based on watching sensation in the body. Some work on loving kindness. For some... I give instruction in beginning insight practices. Others I teach concentration methods that will eventually lead them into highest states of absorption and wisdom. He says, the whole of Buddhist practice can be summed up in one sentence, cling to nothing. And often even very wise people will still cling to one method that worked for them they've not yet been able to completely go let go of their method or their teacher. So he says, don't hold on to any method. Use them all as skillful means. What factors are involved in selecting a proper meditation for a student, he's asked. In guiding a student, I look at his, his or her past practices and propensities. I consider how much time and energy a student has to devote to meditation. Is he a lay person who will practice one hour a day or a monk wishing to do intensive round-the-clock practice? Temperament is the key. Does this person's temperament lend itself to a practice? Loving-kindness for some angry people is a good way to start. Meditation on equanimity is good for those who are overly concerned about people around them instead of their own practice. Many factors that can be considered in choosing a meditation He says that practice should be directed opposite your predominant hindrances. For example, if your temperament is one that leads you to indifference, you should make an extra effort to cultivate compassion. If lust is a problem, use the contemplation on the repulsiveness of the body until you can see its true nature more clearly, unhindered by your desires. If you're deluded and confused, cultivate investigation. But you must practice with devotion and sincerity. You must have devotion to your own path directed with an unceasing desire to know the truth. One of his practices, by the way, is um, breaking through pain. Okay? Now, it's interesting because we, we talked 
And uh, another um, of these masters talked about staying with pain and, and not moving, but there was such a different vibe from that master to his. He's just, he has just this kind of um, both strong will, but very light heart. So it's there, it comes through in his teachings. But here he's asked to describe the process of breaking through what they call breaking through a posture. Okay, for those macho meditators here in the in the room, would you describe that, please? Our fear of pain and our attachment to the body interfere with clarity and wisdom. For those disciples who have the energy and inclination, I recommend an insight practice concentrating on the movement of sensation in the body. This is done while holding only one posture, sitting, standing, lying, or walking for a long period of time. As the meditator holds any posture attentive to the body, pain increases. As he continues to hold still, the pain continues to increase, and he must concentrate directly on these feelings. Bodily pain is a precise object on which to concentrate. Have you ever noticed that when you're in the middle of pain, your mind isn't lost in fantasy? (laughs) You are here, right? You might wish you were any place but here, but it is demanding your attention. Look at this. This can be your ally instead of a problem because here you finally are. So he says, bodily pain is a precise object on which to concentrate. Eventually, the mind perceives the pain not as pain, but as a clear sensation, neither desirable nor undesirable, arising and ceasing in the body. Often meditators will sit or stand for a whole 24 hours in one position. If anybody does that, please tell me next, next week. All right. As soon as we stop moving, the suffering inherent in our bodies shows itself. Sometimes four or five, sometimes eight hours or more will pass before a meditator breaks through his attachment to bodily pain then there is no need to move. The mind becomes extremely clear, concentrated, and malleable. A great deal of joy and rapture accompany this breakthrough. The meditator is able to see clearly with equanimity bodily and mental phenomena arising and ceasing. With bodily desires stilled and strong concentration developed, wisdom arises. Anybody ever have that experience of looking at intense pain and having it um, shift without moving, but that the pain goes away? Anything you want to share about that? Really good for your concentration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, developing very deep concentration. Anyone else? Alistair, did you read? What's that? A numbness comes over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kate.
breaks at some point and then you just come to that point of concentration. Yeah, right. And Liam? So at some point he would just go towards it instead of away from it and uh, what seemed very solid starts to become lots of different sensations and the, the concept of pain dissolves and there you are just with the bare sensation. It's quite extraordinary. The, the first time that ever happened to me I was thinking, you know, this must be some kind of magic. You know, where did the pain go? It's like you can get, and again, I say this not to mm, hold up a carrot or thinking, oh, you'll be a better meditator if you do this. It's just kind of, it's fascinating. It's interesting. And it does take a kind of concentration or stillness where the mind isn't wandering very much. It, It can't wander. If there's the slightest thought of, oh my goodness, this is bad. It just you are spun out. But if you put all your attention like a laser, just not trying to make anything happen, but just very curious and very interested, there is a kind of um, collecting, composing of the attention. And in fact, in that collecting, it can actually be very, um, very pleasant, very uh, because the concentrated mind can can lead to even bliss states. You can get concentrated and and have a, a bliss on pain. It sounds very strange. There's a very there's a few different ways that it works. One is as Liam was saying you start seeing the solidity break up and what had been locked in your mind as pain is just energy and it, and it moves into simply an energy that can fill you. And it can also be just this very fine absorption where there is um, you know, certain concentration states which do, do lead to, to bliss. And what happens... What can happen, you know, the thought of sitting there for two or three hours might seem, you know, ridiculous. But if you go to the other side of it, that energy, once the pain breaks up, and you can't make this happen, but if you, if you're in the, if you're kind of on a roll and are, have the energy to, to check it out, when that happens, you can sit there for a long time and it's not like you're toughing it out but you just ha- it's like you go into this other level of energy it's like oh gee no pain 
and you, it's like you're riding, on, you're on this this ride, actually. It's like last week when we talked about the standing babas. Remember, we did uh, the standing meditation. I said some of these guys were standing for, you know, eight years, and they were still going through it. And the ones that were stand that had been doing it for, you know, fifteen or sixteen or twenty years had kind of come through the other end. Well, this is on a much smaller scale. It's like you can break through. What the mind says is is unworkable, and move to another another side of that. Just so you know that those things are possible. One of his main practices is um, seeing all of his practices, but one of his main teachings is seeing the emptiness of things. So the pain comes and goes and you think, oh my goodness, this is so painful. And then you see the emptiness of that. Oh, where did the pain go? And as you pay attention also, whether or not it's doing that, breaking through the posture or just noticing things coming and going, his main teaching is seeing the emptiness of it all. Everything is coming and going, coming and going, and there's nothing substantial that you can hold on to. And if you're around Ajahn Jamnian, his main teaching. He doesn't. He doesn't speak much English, uh, but his main teaching, four words: empty, empty, happy, happy. That's it. And he does this little. He's kind of double jointed or so with his thumbs, and he goes empty, empty, happy, happy. You know, that's a transmission right there. Because when you see through the emptiness, you're also seeing through the selflessness of who you are, and you're uh, going going past that sense of ego. And there's ease. In fact, this reminds me, Anam, who's coming, that that Rinpoche, Anam Rinpoche, has this uh, this book of his teachings that sums up the same thing. He says the na- the title of the book is No Self. No problem. (laughs) So, um, I'll mention a little bit. We'll do some practice and then I'll share my practices. Um, He's he's got an amazing energy. And I've been around him um, for a chunk of time. Deborah Chamberlain Taylor, who's one of the teachers at Spear Rock, spent a fair amount of, of time, she and her husband George, with uh, at his uh, meditation center in southern Thailand, which I've visited. It's called uh, Tiger Cave, I think it is, in, in Krabi. And I went there. It's a really neat place. Uh, he went there. It was a place that that had tigers around. He said, "Oh, this is a good place to to start a meditation center." You know, if you've got that kind of loving kindness, you know, I guess you're not afraid of much. Uh, but Deborah and George spent a fair amount of time with him, and they said the guy just doesn't sleep. You know, maybe just a few hours a night. He's there as long as anybody is there to listen to the Dharma, and they'd be kind of like. You know, barely keeping up, and he'd be ready to go. Um, and I've heard he sleeps like about four hours a night. And like I say, he carries on the, these this uh, 
this whole cloak that's got amulets and trinkets and jewels and stuff just that people have given him. He opens it up and it's, I don't know what you'd, he's like a little store, a walking store there. Nothing is for sale. But it's like people give him these amulets, uh, give him these um, prized jewels and he uh, he blesses them and he uses them in his uh, healing and, and shaman work. This is completely unorthodox for a Theravadan monk to be carrying jewels and valuables around. But he is very clear on his intention why he's doing it. Uh, he told me once uh, that he hadn't been angry for, I think it was like 20 or 25 years. That was an impressive line. <clears throat> Anything else to know? Practices for the layperson. I'll just mentioned a couple of his words on that. For a householder. How much time do you recommend for a householder or a layperson to practice? For one still doubtful or weak in practice, they should take it an hour at a time, whenever they like, not forcing yet continuing enough to see the benefit for themselves. Those who have seen more clearly the fruit of practice should meditate as much as they can in their work day, perhaps an hour in a quiet setting each morning and evening. For those who know the true nature of practice, work in the world is no hindrance. Mindfulness and clarity can be cultivated all the time. They understand how all situations are teachings and that true meditation is not apart from life but cultivating inner stillness and wisdom in all circumstances. One of his um, practices is called Maha Vipassana. Let's see if I can... Which is, um, besides noticing the breath or sensations or, um, or focusing on a particular object, you open up to the vast space of awareness as the object. And you're simply resting in pure awareness. And this is... Um, this is one mode of practice that if you've done, say, a Dzogchen retreat, a Tibetan Dzogchen retreat, or um, sat with some masters that aren't focused on objects, but are just focused on the space within the objects, around the objects, the objects are rising and passing, is a very profound practice. This tonight when I gave a little bit of instruction at the beginning, I said, um, just a little pointing to that, be the awareness, be the space of awareness in which everything is rising and passing on its own. And um, I thought we could do a little bit of that. One way to do that is what's called... Um, big mind meditation that Joseph Goldstein uses. 
where you are the awareness. And so I'd like you just to settle back for a few moments and I'll do a little bit of a guided practice with this. Just uh, find a comfortable posture. And let the mind be open, wide, clear, like the sky. And within the sky, just notice the sounds coming and going on their own. The louder, obvious sounds, the softer, the sound of silence. The sounds appearing and disappearing in the open space of mind. not reaching towards or moving away from anything. Rest in the open, wide, vast space of mind as the sounds appear and disappear on their own. the mind be at ease, resting completely, open, wide, the space of awareness in which everything just comes and goes. Now become aware of sensation as points of feeling like stars in the night sky. No head, no shoulders, no back, arms or legs, only points of sensation like stars in the night sky. inside, outside, no boundaries, separations, only sounds and sensations arising, passing in the open space of mind.
keep the mind soft and steady, perfectly still, allowing sounds and sensations to appear and disappear in the open stillness of mind. like clouds passing through the sky. No roots, no home, arising and vanishing in the open sky of mind. Sounds, sensations, thoughts, images appearing and disappearing in the soft stillness of mind. Reaching out or pushing away, allowing everything to arise and pass by itself in the open stillness of mind. Now look directly at the nature of mind. Mind is clear and invisible like empty space. Without color or form. Rest in the pure awareness itself, timeless and unborn. No inside, no outside. Mind is clear, unborn, unformed. 
clear and open without limit, without boundaries. Rest in the pure awareness in which everything arises and passes on its own. Nothing to do at all. No trying, no effort. Not doing, simply being. Resting completely in the pure awareness, in the vast space of mind. Sounds, sensations, images, thoughts, feelings, all rising and passing away in the vast space of mind. When you hear the bell, let the bell arise and pass in the space of mind. Allow yourself to become grounded in feeling the earth, but still holding that spaciousness of simply being. So we'll just uh, take a moment to check in with that. Anybody have anything to share with, or questions or what that was like?
And if you found that you fell asleep, did people fall asleep? Anyone fall asleep? Hmm? Huh? It's just you kind of get so spacious it becomes spaciness very easily. Uh, nothing to judge or feel like you've done anything wrong. Uh, but you get a sense of the, the, the possibilities of space without looking for anything, just being the space. So, one thing I just want to share with you in my own practice is that um, there's a number of, there's so many different ways, obviously, as, as, you, as you're seeing from all these different teachers. When you become familiar enough with practices, with certain practices, so you're not wondering, oh, which one should I do? Or which one is the real practice? But when you kind of, you know, it's like if you play one instrument and then you learn to play another instrument, it's, it, you don't have to get confused. You can shift from one style of practice to another. And when I practice, I, I have generally um, three, different, three different modes at different times. Sometimes when I start a retreat, I'll just go right for the breath, just anapana, just in and out, just really collecting the attention and feeling it. Um, do we do touch point here? Have we done the touch point practice here? Maybe it's been a while. Here's just a little bit of, uh, of one way that I do the breath. All right. Do the breath, noting, and then the non-doing. We can switch to all three in a, in a little uh, mini retreat. All right. So feel your, feel your breath right now. And we did a little bit of this a, a few weeks ago, but this is with a little variation. Just notice for a moment the in-breath, just the moment that it begins. Let yourself be really interested in it. And just the moment that the in-breath turns to the out-breath. And then at the end of the out-breath, if there's a space, then notice some touching sensation. For instance, the lips resting on each other. So you're not hurrying the next breath along. You might be noting in, out, touching, touching. In, out, touching. Just let yourself be interested in the breath. The more narrow focus. And when the mind becomes somewhat collected, then it can be helpful to open up the field and just notice changing experience. Not just the breath, but you're feeling sensations arise or sounds and noticing one 
moment of experience coming and going and then the next one. And it can be helpful to do mental noting on this. So there's in, out, hearing, or itching, or just for a few moments, notice changing experience, one thing after another. It's like you're noticing the different instruments in a in an orchestra. And then when the mind is collected and noticing changing experiences, then switching to this non-doing mode, kind of what we just did a few moments ago. Stop trying to do anything. Stop trying to notice any particular one thing and just be the space and listen to the symphony, relaxed, very receptive, not moving towards or away from anything. If you get a bit spacey, then just come back here and know that you're sitting here breathing and get reconnected that way. Then very gently you can open your eyes. So I hope that doesn't confuse. It's just there's lots of different ways to play. Is that how are you doing? Is that okay? It's fun. That's meditation is can really be fun. As long as you're not having this idea of, you know, I've gotta get someplace, I've gotta be a good meditator and it'll kill me if it might if you have that attitude, you know. Just have fun exploring the different realms of, of mind. There, there are. And whatever works for you, whatever helps you be present, that's good practice. Okay? Alright. Time for a song? Now this is really, we've gone through a whole lot of different lineage holders so it just is fitting on Valentine's Day that I share my lineage with you this by the way is one of the most inspiring pictures 
for me. I don't know if you can see it, but it's uh, like Shea Stadium or Candlestick Park in the background. And um, my lineage holders in the front ground, foreground. Oops. Yeah. You can actually pass, you can pass the picture around. It's a very cool picture. And what Valentine's Day song? Yeah. This might be a little bit hokey. Just let yourself feel it. I didn't make enough for everyone, which means you have to share. So, I got made about 30 or so of them. Everybody have? Or near near some lyrics? Let yourself feel it. It's it doesn't get any more prona- profound than this, I think. It also happens to con- contain for me um one of the most um profound lines in uh in well, it's my favorite Beatle line and will uh Transform your life if you really get it. The last verse where he says, There's nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be.
nothing you can know that isn't known. Nothing you can see that isn't shown. There's no way you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.